namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa bhutang tamang sankhang namasami The Dhamma teachings of the Buddha are are uh, conventions he devised in order to be able to contemplate and reflect on the way things are. The uh, the body, the the uh, conditions of the mind. So we have the what we call the five aggregates or the five khandas. Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana, and the these five aggregates or groups. Sometimes they'll translate it as heaps. I've heard that in the, in translating Kanda in English, sometimes there's a heap. It's a it's just a some category or some designation to to uh, reflect upon. When we're contemplating the way things are, we need these kind of ways of putting things uh, in some kind of uh, where we can see them uh, and relate to them as objects. So like the the rupa kanda or the body and the vijnana kanda, consciousness. Now, Now these are, when we talk about the five kandas, we have the, the rupa, which is the body, vedana is feeling, sanya is perception, sankara is uh, translated as volition or thinking, thought, and then uh, vijnana is consciousness. So recognize that, that because of birth, we're, we're, we have rupa and vijnana as our karma. You know, been born as human beings, so that that means that implies that that they have a body, a physical body, and which is conscious. Then the three khandas between those two, the Vedana, Sanya, Sankara. This is these are the the kind of mental states that we experience that we tend to identify with and uh, tend to uh, create suffering around the, na- the, the body uh, and the uh, feelings that we have. For example, the in consciousness, uh, being a conscious, being conscious means that we are going to uh, pick up what, whatever comes into the field of consciousness, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. So we're going to feel that. We're in, in the feeling then, like Vedana, implies, uh, as I said the previous evening, attraction and repulsion, and neither attraction nor repulsion, pleasant or painful or neutral. Then, with that, we 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 when we, if it's pleasant, then then we we uh, we want to have it. We want to hold it, keep it have more of it. If it's unpleasant, we want to get rid of it. 
if it's neutral, we generally don't even notice it. And so we have the, the perceptual abilities like sanya or perception, ability to, to, uh, to say, remember memory and to, to name things. We have language, we, have, we, can, we, can, we can designate things. We can say this is, we can all agree to call this a clock. This is a perception, isn't it? We perceive it as a clock. We can be conscious of it, through the, like in eye consciousness, but we may, but we we all now say, say all of us here would would tend to perceive it in the terms of a clock, uh, and so that is that is what we call sanya, the ability to to say perceive forms or ideas, things, conditions as a certain, to, to give it a name. Uh, when, when things come into our field of vision, say, that we can't, we have no perception for, we tend to either ignore them or we, we put them into some convenient perceptual category because we, we feel uncomfortable if we can't name it, if we, if we can't designate it as something, if it's shapeless or formless, isn't it? Remember, some people feel very uncomfortable around kind of abstract art or uh, forms that that are that you 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 can't perceive as being anything this way or that way. If you're conditioned to to a certain style of art where trees look like trees and women look like women and dogs look like dogs, uh, then you feel. You feel you can deal with that, but when you, well, many people when they go to the Tate Gallery, <laughs> they feel very uncomfortable with some of the 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 forms there, because we we can we can perceive it as modern art and kind of dismiss it in that in that way. But also, uh, we we can feel very ill at ease when we when we can't name, designate, define categorize something, some form. Sometimes we just dismiss it, we don't notice. Like with sound, if we, I, I noticed when learning the Thai language, uh, because in English the tones of our words are not terribly important, it doesn't, doesn't affect the meaning, but Thai is a tonal language. And it took me a long time to be able to perceive the sounds, the different tones of of Thai, to be being very dependent. If you get the tone wrong, you can the, the the meaning of the word can be totally different. So, so the tone is a very important thing. I had to develop, listen, so that I could perceive the 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 tones of the Thai language, because I didn't I didn't have perceptions for that in the in English in the English conditioning. Just like in the octave uh, form of sound, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, and the various flats and sharps of of that scale, we feel comfortable with. But when when you listen to something like Chinese opera, Western people feel very just hear just noise. They 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 just hear things that they can't relate to sounds that sound cacophonous and noisy. 
because we we're conditioned to perceive maybe Western type music, classical music, or if you're used to classical, and you then when you hear say many forms of modern jazz or rock or whatever, you can feel uh, averse to it because it's it's out of your realm of of perception that is that that you can that you've accepted in your in your consciousness it's like also when we culture shock many people when they go from one society to another they like like I took a group of English people this was about 10 12 years ago a group of English people to Thailand to see Ajahn Chah and they uh, and many of them found uh, that they had this culture shock. They, they found themselves feeling very frightened and insecure when they left the, the kind of boundaries and conventions of Europe to go into an Asian country uh, where they couldn't understand the language, the weather was hot, the food was different. They went to stay in a monastery, in our monastery in, in northeast Thailand. And one one lady really freaked out, went into <laughs> went into almost shock uh, to live in a in a forest monastery. And that's because the, her perceptual, uh, the her the what she could accept on the perceptual realm, her sanya was was fixed culturally in certain ways. And when those those supporting things were not present, you feel very threatened and insecure. You don't know what to do. You're, that which gives you security and seems to protect you and give you confidence is not there. You just can fall apart, get hysterical. For those of us who've traveled a lot and have lived in different countries and all that, it becomes easier and easier to adapt to different uh, cultures. I remember when I was in the Peace Corps, uh, I was very eager to, to adapt. I liked the idea of even going native. And we went off to, uh, they sent us off to Sabah and Sarawak in, uh, on the island of Borneo. And uh, they put me in a, in a Chinese school. I was teaching English in this Chinese school, this little remote uh, port town on the east coast of Sabah and and uh, I quite enjoyed the exoticness of it and the challenge of kind of learning to fit into the community and not just be kind of a white man. I wanted to kind of be one of the natives and tried my best to kind of be uh, fit into the into the society that I was in and I even find the Chinese a little bit too sophisticated for me. I wanted to move out into the islands, uh, the islands out where these, where these kind of tribal people lived, the Bajaus, and see if I could live on, you know, the coconuts and fish like they did. It's quite eager. And to me, I found that challenging and interesting. But other Peace Corps people uh, had nervous breakdowns. <laughs> they couldn't. They just couldn't take even uh, even the capital cities. They couldn't cope with. 
because the, the foreignness, the strangeness, the difference. With food, it's that way also, isn't it? If, if uh, I remember uh, that uh, trying to we in uh, Thailand, in Northeast Thailand, the people there, the village people, would uh, were very generous to when we established the Wat Banana Chat International Monastery. We, uh, the, 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 the village people nearby were always very generous bringing their food and offering us food every day. So, so and more and more kind of Western people started coming to this uh, monastery. It's in a rather remote part of Thailand. So the, a group of Americans were there one, while I was still there. They wanted to prepare an American meal for the village people. Because, because the village people had had never eaten American food, so they did. They prepared American food. Village people wouldn't eat it. <laughs> they just looked at it. They wouldn't. Even, they didn't want to even try it out. <laughs> because, <laughs> because they never. They wouldn't eat. They have never eaten. Uh, you know, they're they're. Their range of their perceptions of food were strictly from the village level of Northeast Thailand. Even like a lot of the food from Bangkok would be slight, would be difficult because one gets very fixed uh, tastes and preferences through this addiction to these to the uh, perceptual uh, the perceptions we have, what we're accustomed to, what we were habituated to. And then with that, then say, if, if I see this, if I, I, I say, just take for example, this clock, this thing here, before we call it anything, this object comes into my field of vision, there's consciousness of it, I consciousness. And then I, then I call it, I say, that's a clock. So that's perceiving it as a clock. And then I then I proliferate. I, I can prove. I say I like this clock. I don't like this clock. This clock is mine, or it's not mine. I do like this clock. It's big numbers. I can take my glasses off, and I can still see the time. I we're bifocals. I can take them off, and I can still figure out what time it is. That's a very nice clock, as far as I'm concerned. I really like this clock. I'm glad that they put it in this. Because sometimes the clock they have in the <laughs> sala is a more attractive-looking clock, but it's. But I can't. I have to put my glasses on to be able to see the numbers. That's called uh, proliferation. That I just do. Sankara. So then this this. Uh, this um, notice that the, the perception, and then the then the this whole process started going on, kind of volition of movement of, of thought of just clock, and then and then then the this proliferating all the associations of liking disliking me and mine followed, and I could go on for hours doing that if you want. <laughs> Perception, uh, volition, uh, consciousness. So, I like to sometimes reflect on the 
rupa and and vijnana or, or body the body physical body and consciousness as a as a result of birth this is just this is the, these are we get from from being born and and then the result of that feeling the vedana is it pleasure and pain and neutral then the sanya uh, kanda and sankara are what we uh, are like cultural conditioning it's the what we acquire um, after we're born and uh, so that that we become acculturated to to the to the family that we're born into we 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 just take on the our mother and father's attitudes prejudices the the class that we're born into the the ethnic background the the nation the the and also the just the the problems that each particular family has uh, all of this would be conditioned through sanya sankara uh, as a as an acculturating process that we identify identify with it so in 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 all cultures we we identify with these five khandas i'm this is my body and then my feelings and my perceptions the my things uh, my language my memories all these are mine and then the my own views and opinions and attitudes and tendencies and habits and and my consciousness i'm a conscious person so no, notice that then all of this is is the personality view the sense of me and mine or the the sense of atta or uh, or self as in regards to these five aggregates five heaps when we reflect on the on these five aggregates in terms of dhamma we're we're now looking at them in in the in the terms of anicca dukkha anatta or the characteristics of impermanence is anicca dukkha is unsatisfactory and anatta is not self or non self now these three characteristics are not we're not trying to just just kind of believe that everything is impermanent unsatisfactory and not self because that's just that's just uh you know perceiving again perceiving that as uh, uh in in a, where i say that i this is my clock and then i perceive that it's not mine it's just you know a negation of a uh, of a positive so we're not trying to just to accumulate negative perceptions uh and, and to kind of blot out the positive one but using these three characteristics of anicca dukkha anatta as for reflection so and contemplation so like when we reflect on it then we 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 began to to observe the the obvious things like we're conscious through our senses aren't we the the eye the ears the nose the tongue the body the mind this is all conscious experience so in in um say in investigation of it in terms of seeing the the impermanence we recognize that say i can i can contemplate the fact that that i see this clock now and that that it's in my consciousness only for brief moments it's not 
something that that is not going to be conscious of uh, for very long or for any length of time. Just by knowing that, we we begin to 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 break through the illusion that 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 conscious that this this idea of a clock and being my clock or the clock I like as a kind of solid fixed view and in and making assumptions that is that that all the time if if I if 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 I regard this clock as mine that it's it's mine even when I'm not here or even when somebody else has it I become I become very uh, you know attached to the idea of that this clock is mine then if it's taken somebody steals it I get very upset angry uh, want to get that get it back I want to uh, have the person uh, chastised scold them uh, maybe if I'm you know get really angry I want to throw them out of the monastery maybe I want to call the police I can, you know, the the mind can go into somebody stole my clock, and and that clock is mine. The, the, this way of of holding on, grasping, and ident- an identification creates so much suffering in our lives. The uh, say when we have nice things we have valuable um, objects like antiques beautiful uh, and delicate objects remember the the Sangharaj of Thailand years ago not the present one but the previous one told me about going to China he's invited to China and while he was in China they wanted to give him a nice gift, so they gave him this antique cup uh, or teapot, a teapot, Chinese teapot from the Ming Dynasty. Very valuable, very precious, very beautiful, very delicate object, a gift. So he he had a, a samanera with him at the time, and so he was he was uh, when he was given this, he was you know quite pleased. Uh, be given a gift is always a, a pleasant experience, and then the, a beautiful object and a valuable one and an antique and all the rest. You're you're perceiving it as, and you notice that these that these perceptions are are give it a lot of significance. It's not just any old teapot, you know, from Oxfam or something. It it's given <laughs> from 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 somebody important you know, that you've met in China. It's an antique. It's worth a lot of money. So then, he said, the Ansangaraj had said, he was he was always said, now now be careful when you when we go back to Thailand, you must wrap that up very carefully. Make sure that it's you know has a lot of uh, cotton wool around it and put it in a proper place because it might break. And and so he his mind kept thinking about this cup and or this teapot and and. Uh, and finally, they got back to Thailand, got into the mo- went back to the monastery. They arrived safely, and he's able to to put it on, you know, show people that this is what they gave him in China, and, and he was quite enjoying it. But also, he said, there is always this sense of concern for it. And then one day, the 
the Salmonera comes in, the novice comes in, she kind of shaking. <laughs> the Sangharana says, what, what is the matter? What's happened? And the Salmonera says, well, you know, that Ming pity pot, you know, one that they gave you in China. Says, yes. <laughs> I broke it. <laughs> and the Sangharaja's re- response was, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Don't have to worry about that one. <laughs> so having having precious things and and uh, all the idea of value and and, and uh, worth. You know, these are perceptions we have for, for objects, and they they then we empower them, don't we? They we think about them, we worry about them, we we. We have to find places to put them. We have to put locks on the doors. We have to build gates. We have to put in burglar alarms. The more kind of precious objects that come into our monasteries, we have to we have to find uh, ways of protecting it all. Putting it in display cases that you can lock, and so forth. The monasteries are are places magnets for for antiques and precious objects. So this is this what we we notice that we, we create this in our mind, isn't it? This is this is our conditioning. If you took a took the Ming uh, antique teapot to somebody that didn't uh, have any uh, any perceptions for antiquity or for even teapots, you know, it wouldn't if it broke anything, it wouldn't probably wouldn't know what it was. Probably thought it was uh, something to plant a flower in, or to uh, maybe they thought such an old thing you just throw out. <laughs> so our lives do are are like that. We we create this suffering around the. Uh, ourselves, our, the things we have, the people that we live with, the, 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 that which we empower with our beliefs and our loves and hates uh, uh, influence our conscious experience of life and create suffering. So we, we have this, this uh, ongoing sense of being threatened or the fear of losing things that we love or fear of, uh, of uh, having to to live in a place that we don't like, or n- dread having to be with people we don't we don't want to be with, uh, we can worry uh, about you know even when we're, everything is going well about what will we do if we lose all our money, or if we if our house burns down, or if our car crashes, or if the wife dies, or what what how will I be able to handle it here if if the if the cat dies. Here in England, people get very attached to, to animals. So I went to talk to a Sri Lankan psychiatrist one day who's working here in England, and and I said, I asked him, I said, what? Well, do you find it different, like the mental problems between the Sri Lankan people and the English? And he said, well, he said, you know, English people can get very depressed over the death of a cat. 
And maybe Sri Lankan people wouldn't put so much, wouldn't empower a cat with such significance. Uh, they were, if we get very emotionally attached and dependent on a, on a pet, and then when it, when it dies, it, uh, we can feel t- totally kind of despairing uh, and lost through the separation of the loss of the love. This sequence of like Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, say in in our experience of life, because we we say if a, if a cat should see this, it wouldn't wouldn't perceive it as as anything. Their perceptual perceptions aren't usually linguistic, are they? They're usually related to more to instinctual tendencies, uh, food and uh, fears self-preservation, things like this. Uh, the animal realm is a realm where of consciousness, the body, they're born and they're conscious and they feel, they feel attracted and repelled um, by, by what, they're, uh, what contacts them. But they don't perceive it in, in, with, with, uh, with, they don't have a retentive memory. They don't, they don't, because they don't have language or ability to perceive it as something, Therefore, their their responses, their reactions are more, say, on the level of instinct or feeling, but not so much on perception. The story I like to tell of of uh, when I was walking up in uh, Northumberland several years ago, and we were it was in Yorkshire, in fact, we were we were walking in the Yorkshire Dales and. And we heard this incredible kind of uh, pathetic sound. It, it seemed to be reverberating in the air out in the out in the you know, out in the countryside. And then we we climbed up to the crest of a hill. And we looked across. There's another hill. And there were all these sheep crying, bleating, and crying. It was kind of forlorn, anguished, grief-stricken cries from these sheep. Whole flock of them. So I, th- I asked, why are they crying? Said, because uh, I, I, their lambs had just been taken away from them. So their their little lambs had had just been snatched away, and they were grief-stricken over the loss of their baby. So that's interesting because one doesn't even perceive. A, a sheep is having that, you know. It doesn't. We don't think of it. That matters so much for them. But we think if that should happen to a human woman, she probably could. She could probably, you know, crack up or be neurotic the rest of her life. Never forgive. I'm sure the sheep the next day had uh, had readjusted to eating grass and getting on with their lives. And 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 didn't think about it. They couldn't think about the loss of their baby once the actual grief experience of separation from their loved was was uh, was once that was over, they didn't remember it. They didn't have the language or the the memory to to think about it or to bring it up. The twenty, the, you know, like five years, ten years later, the the sheep says, "Remember that day when they took away my little lamb," but. But a human woman could remember it the rest of her life because of memory, isn't it? Because we, 
it could, she could, that could ruin her life. She could hold on to that memory when somebody stole her baby away from her and, uh, and become an alcoholic or a drug addict or just someone totally obsessed with, a, with the one, with, with that, that memory of loss. So you see, this is a, the sanya, sankara, uh, that is a common, that is a part of our human karma. It gives us a lot of pain and a lot of suffering because it is. This is intelligence and it, and ability and having to remember things because you, we also are going to remember unpleasant things. We usually remember extremities, either extreme pleasure or extreme displeasure. You don't remember neutral. You don't know like, like you wouldn't remember what you had for lunch a year ago. Unless it was maybe something that made you terribly sick or <laughs> it was such a wonderful meal that you could never forget it. But if it was just, or the, the porridge we have in the monastery is easy to, to forget. <laughs> We remember the successes and failures of our life, don't we? When, and the, the, when we receive the university degree, when we win the prize, when we, uh, when we meet the one we love, and when we lose the one we love, and things like this we remember. But this, the ordinariness of our lives, we don't. So memory, say, is, is around the extreme, extreme experiences of human existence. So remember, so remember that, contemplate that, that 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 we do suffer because we can we can remember the wrongs done to us twenty years ago, thirty years ago. When I was I was in the navy for four years, and during that uh, from the age of nineteen to twenty three, I was in the uh, United States Navy, and I experienced some very unpleasant. Of things in the in the military, and I can, and I can remember them. I can bring bring them into my memory right now. Uh, and and if I want to indulge in those memories, you know, like resentment or or you know, anger, resentment, bitterness about the unfairness and stupidity that I had to uh, you know live with for four years. I can I can get upset and angry right now, and that was thirty-five, forty years ago. Nearly forty years ago, and that I can yet forty years later I can still remember There's a lot of things I can't remember in, while I was in the navy, but the the unpleasant ones I can. And so the, this, but but putting it in the, but seeing it in the in in the context of memory as memory that arises and ceases, seeing it as only when I put it in that in that in that heap or that aggregate of of memory or sanya sanya kanda, uh, then then I can uh, it somehow I'm not empowering it with with emotional impact. It's 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 looked at and seen as 
something that arises and ceases in the mind rather than proliferating on it like with that thing that happened to me 40 years ago when I was in the military how dare they and I go on proliferate and I can get excited and angry at the age I am now 40 years later over some, some being able to remember what happened 40 years ago I'm sure all of you do that in in your lives don't you you can this is you know we we uh, we're very good at at, at uh, holding on to to the past memories of the past especially as you get older the past is is more significant I find now that the age I am I'm nearly I'll be 60 in a couple of years that whenever I hear like music of the 40s 30s and 40s I have I mean somehow I I, I find because that was the kind of music that I first heard is music that I start my perceptions of music were created through listening to that so like the kind of swing music of the 30s and 40s brings brings incredible nostalgia <laughs> even for a Buddhist monk you hear, you hear. <laughs> it's the power of the kind of what originally the, what your perceptions were formed with like the, that was what what one heard as music when when one first started noticing music being aware of music as music and so that that has a, a, a power over my mind say that somebody who they was born later probably wouldn't have the same feeling and yet at one point I'd rejected that kind of music that was old-fashioned stuff from you know that means you wanted to keep up with the times and go with the fashions the the old uh, music swing music of the 30s and 40s one kind of went on to to newer things and better things and yet as an emotional for emotional impact I think a lot of that which that which uh, was, was our first experience with with life uh, with with sound or with sight I went I remember a couple of years ago I went back to the place I was born in in Seattle and uh, visited the the house that I lived the first six years of my life in hadn't I hadn't seen that house for 50 years and when I left we moved when I was about six years old and and we never I never went back to it except a couple of years ago and yet I could remember exactly where it was in and of course Seattle's changed very much in 50 years uh, but it, the house was still there I could remember the streets uh, and, and even it's built up because the area was at, say in 19 what 1940 when we left it was uh, it was like a uh, it was more parkland and and not very heavily populated uh, part of the city so it was it was a little on the kind of a suburb 
And so, but now it's all built up, houses everywhere, and, and, uh, but what I could still remember, except I noticed that my perception of the house was, was that it, it had a, a huge lawn in front of it. The, I my memory of the house was it had this enormous, huge, grassy lawn in front of it. And when I went to see it a couple of years ago, it wasn't, didn't look very big. But when you're three or four years old, you know, it must, it looked enormous. Then, then I remember that my mother used to take us for long, long, long walks to the lake. And this, this lake was very far away. But actually the lake was only two blocks away from the house. <laughs> but to a small child with short legs in it, it must have seemed like a very long way. The adjusting the perceptions of a small child, which I still had from say five, six years old, 50 years later, and yet I could still recognize the, the house, the, the names of the streets and the and even, and, but the, the, the judgment of big and small and distance was, was, uh, had uh, changed considerably due to growing up and, and uh, so forth. But this is, this is conditioning of the mind, and this is perception, what we're, what we're, what is instilled in us, what is put into us after we're born. When we're born, we're conscious. We have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body. We have a mind. But the mind is is empty, though, isn't it? It doesn't. It does. There's no sense of a self. A baby isn't doesn't have an ego yet. You don't develop a sense of yourself really until you're older. Six or seven years old, you start you, you start identifying more strongly as a separate kind of personality. But the, uh, I remember as a, a little boy, you know, we were, we were, we, we didn't, being male or female didn't make much difference up till a certain age. I had an older sister, she was two years older, and my mother used to bathe us in the, in the bathtub together. Great fun, I remember, and great fun with my sister in the bathtub. And then, then one of the the, the uh, shocks of my life that I can remember now, here the great traumas that I've had to bear <laughs> in this process of growing up, was one day my sister refused to take baths with me anymore. <laughs> she was two years older and and I just couldn't figure it out because it was such fun and I couldn't figure out why she didn't want to take bath with me. But I mean... <laughs> but this was... And then as I grew older, I began to understand why. But, but these are... These are the process of uh, identification with, with, uh, with the gender of the body, with the expectations of a society, isn't it? Of what your particular society expects of a, a boy or a girl or a man or a woman. It's all different, isn't it? What, say, in old traditional Thailand, what is expected of a man uh, trained and instilled in men or in women is, is different from what it, what it is here in England 
what it is here in England is different than what it is in America. Uh, it's not all totally different, but there, there's different emphasis or different attitudes, different expectations. And now, of course, say in the modern time with feminism and, and the kind of liberal uh, perceptions of, of the age, the, the, all the old conditioning, old condition perceptions are, are, uh, are being di uh, uh, thrown out. We, we're not, we're not, we don't have to live up to these standards anymore. We, can, we have now the idea that we are free to do what we want to do as an independent person, as an individual. Uh, and we, we're not trying to fit into uh, the uh, kind of classical conservative perceptions of men, women, uh, mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, uh, authorities. Uh, hierarchy is a, is a is an interesting perception because uh, we find that people, modern people, resist and and resent hierarchical structures because modern life is very much a perceiving the perceptual uh, emphasis is around things like freedom, equality, uh, that, that everyone of classlessness. Uh, we, we don't, we, do, we no longer regard uh, being, being belonging to a class as being anything we want to identify with. Uh, here in Britain they still uh, are more class conscious than they are in America. America we don't we don't really think in terms of class. It doesn't, it's not a perception that is, that has much Im uh, significance in the culture because American uh, culture is very much based on the idea of equality. Everyone's the same, even though that's not all, that's not really the way it works. That's the assumption we make and that's what we want to believe. Just reflecting like this so you begin to, to see what, what, how things change and why sometimes you do you feel the way you do uh, even though it might not be maybe you still feel uh, a sense of belonging to a, to a class that you were born into or to a, to a particular ethnic group or a particular uh, nation of people like with, with Jewish people, you find a very strong identification with being Jewish that, that Gentiles don't have. And being a Gentile doesn't, when I think of myself as a Gentile, it doesn't, doesn't bring up much of anything meaningless. It just means I'm not a Jew. And yet, Jewish people, even, even the most sophisticated, well-educated uh, modern, uh, advanced souls that identify with being Jews, uh, that, that is a very powerful identity uh, that sometimes is, is, uh, is grasped very tightly and given a lot of significance. Being, I suppose, belonging to some persecuted minority, uh, and feeling that you, uh, you know, that that will give you a lot more a sense of of being 
separate and special than if you're belonging to a kind of amorphous equal majority of, of beings. As if you if you if you if you're uh, belonging to some some minority group in a in a nation of people that is maybe looked down on and despised or persecuted, it all those kind of memories, fears, influence the mind so that we, we identify with that and and that affects our our how we relate to life and the expectations we have of of uh, the life that we're living. Because I don't identify myself as, as being a Jew, then then I don't have I don't have the same feelings when, when you hear of anti Semitism or or the kind of uh, neo-Nazi movements in Germany, or or here in Britain, the the National Front, or you know, when, whenever these these this kind of news uh, is made known, then I'm, every Jewish person kind of contracts. I'm sure we're in for it again because they have they they know that they're they're always going to be a special group whether they're Americans or English or what they what uh, what the the country they're a citizen they become a citizen of is they still the Jewish identity is still extremely powerful and but that is only a perception isn't it it's instilled into the mind it's a it's it's what is conditioned into the mind and yet that one word can can create all kinds of emotional uh, sankharas of, of feeling persecuted, of feeling vulnerable. Or if you're anti-Semitic, then the word Jew is a is a word that you use in a disparaging uh, way, a way of, of as an insult. Perceiving yourself as a man or a woman is what? What does that do? Like we have, in in the, now we have, a, say, modern life is they they perceive say perceive uh, sexual uh, tendencies in different ways. Now, like the the idea of being gay or bisexual or being uh, a man or being a woman. These these kind of perceptions are instilled into the mind and uh, at one time they could be considered like saying somebody is homosexual you could that could be like a, a something that is very bad and and somebody you ha would have no you would you would persecute or you would make fun of or you would avoid you wouldn't want to stand next to them you wouldn't want to be seen with them and now it's and many because it's considered fashionable and it's all right. And Venerable uh, uh, was in San Francisco recently, and and they have gay uh, Buddhist meditation groups and special special things just for gay men and gay women and things like this, where where the identity, where the particular sexual inclination is is uh, grasped and identified with. You see, but in 
in the level of perception, isn't it? It's merely a perception of the mind. We're looking at it no longer in terms of whether we approve or disapprove, like or dislike it, but observing it as as a function of the mind in which we can put it in that the sanya heap or the sanya khanda, and that 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 is that means that we're we're not we're not being kind of caught up with the the power of that perception with its uh, with the, you know it, it's a highly emotive if it has a lot of power over our mind to bring up uh, proliferating thoughts we're, we're, we're just we're not trying to to dismiss it we're putting it in a perspective of of what it really is as a perception of the mind and then we begin to see these things as merely conditions rather than than say become so convinced that, that that's our identity. Because in these, these kind of strong movements like uh, gay rights or the, in Time magazine they had an article about the most misunderstood unfortunate group of people in the world today are bisexuals. They're not accepted in the homosexual community and they're not understood in the heterosexual community. And so they have to form special community <laughs> just around the, the identity of bisexual. And, and so it, it, this is, if one wants to identify with these perceptions and cling, then the result is some form of always being a special being or something. You have to protect yourself or, you, you know, it, it will, will always, you create suffering in your mind around the grasping and identification with perception. With religion we do it, don't we? We, we become, I'm a Theravadan Buddhist, and, and then when I remember uh, some people say here in Britain years ago, they say, we're Zen, and then we, we are Tibetan, and then the others would have these different identities with we're not Theravadan. Uh, we don't. We don't. We're beyond that. We're we're Zen. And then, then uh, uh, this this sense of of a kind of snob uh, of snobbery, you know, of, of of our our group, our identity is somehow higher and better than than that one. Uh, I'm, I was brought up in the in the Episcopal Church in America. This was a this is like the Church of England in America, the Anglican Church. It's called they use the word Episcopalian. But we were brought up in what they call high church Episcopalian, called Anglo Catholicism. We were brought up to the identity we were Anglo Catholics. My my family were very strong Anglo Catholics. And and if you called my father a Protestant, he'd get furious. And the official title for the Episcopal Church in America is the Protestant Episcopal Church of America. <laughs> and so he was a, ha, always had this kind of defensive attitude, my father. He says, I'm an Anglo-Catholic. They finally, in, in their old age, they, be, they converted to Roman Catholicism because I think they, they couldn't cope with the, uh, with the emotional traumas of, being, of having to deal with Protestant Episcopal and being an Anglo-Catholic. Because these words are given a lot of significance, Protestant and Catholic. 
for for most of you, or like this wouldn't mean, mean very much. Whether somebody called you Protestant, Catholic, whatever, would probably you wouldn't care. But um, but when you're empowering that, if you if you say I am not a Protestant, I'm an Anglo-Catholic, which is not even a Roman Catholic. And even in the Episcopal Church, being Anglo-Catholic, you're a bit of an oddball. <laughs> so you're kind of you're moving up into a kind of very special position that you have to defend, and and the suffering that comes from that is, is you you feel like my father get very angry if somebody uh, in, implied that the Anglo-Catholics weren't as good as the Roman Catholics, or he get very angry if somebody called him a Protestant. And and we really look down on the Presbyterians, Baptists, all these kind of lesser forms. We kind of secretly kind of admired Roman Catholics and Orthodox Christians that they were they were they were all right. And this was this was cultural conditioning, isn't it? And this this, I'm sure many of you have never heard of an Anglo-Catholic, but this was a part of my my identity as a child, what I was acculturated to. So it it had a lot of meaning and significance, and and then the the suffering that that one created out of that identity. We can see it in, uh, like, in in what they call the former Yugoslavia. And we had I had this uh, cartoon in one of the newspapers, and it said it had a kind of cartoon figure of a soldier carrying a a gun like this. And it was the same figure, and it said, "This is a Serbian Serb," and then this is a a, a Croat. This is a this is a Croat from Croatia, and this one is a Bosnian Croat. This one is a Serbian Bosnian. This is a Bosnian Muslim, and this one is a. And it went on, you know, all these different perception labels, and they're, of course, exactly the same figure each one. Because they all you know, they all look the same, and not like they, there's any real racial difference. I think it's just. It's just how you perceive, you know, you, you know, just on the level of race, there's no difference. Uh, those Slavic uh, kind of ethnic uh, Slavs, Yugoslavia, the southern Slavs, so that they, they all look the same, but yet you perceive them. You say, that's a Croat, and you're a Serb. You, you <laughs> Bosnian Muslim is... <laughs> who, who ever heard of a Bosnian Muslim till this the last year? And so that that was now Bosnian Mus Muslims are you know everybody has an idea perception of Muslims in living in some place called Bosnia, which I didn't even know about <laughs> till recently. So these are these are instilled into the mind and empowered and and that the prejudices of the class race ethnic prejudices, they're instilled into the mind. And so these are they, the perception that we get of, of what's good, what's bad, what's allowed, what isn't, what's proper, what is improper, what is moral, what is immoral, 
what is the best, what is the worst, and and therefore, uh, when we we were just caught in this in this perceptual realm, we're conditioned by it. Then we have then we suffer if somebody uh, counters this or insults. Like somebody says, uh, Anglo-Catholics are not real Catholics. I can't take that. But for somebody who who didn't had no perception for that, it would it would you would feel nothing. Like if somebody called me a Bosnian Muslim, it wouldn't upset me. Or a Croat or a Serb, it wouldn't. I wouldn't just think it was funny. Because those those words don't don't have a lot of. I'm not. They don't have a lot of. I'm. I've never identified with any of those terms. Now this is just obvious, you know, the the way things are. But 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 pointing out how how we create this suffering in our lives through this kind of blind empowerment, now this 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 conditioning of the mind, where we where we're we're always in where we can be so offended or upset or displeased or jealous or angry or frightened or threatened just through the use of a la- of a word or a, or a concept or a perception. The identities we have is uh, whatever. Try to bring up in your mind what you think you are and and the, just the perceptions of of yourself. Uh, what you think you're wor- if you're worthwhile or not, if you're good or bad, if you're uh, you know even the idea of being a, a man or woman. See that that is merely a even though the body is male or female, one perceives oneself as as the body. Then one is that a, a man or woman, but taken put into the into the perspective of the five khandhas, the five heaps. One more, you can see it's merely a, a condition that arises and ceases. It's appropriate. Maybe it's a convention that is appropriate to a certain situation. But it's no longer uh, an identity we cling to and and hold to blindly. We can still, if they say on your immigration card, uh, sex, M or F, you you don't put no sex or <laughs> I'm of transcending <laughs> transcendent gender. You go along with the conventions as a just uh, a conventional reality, but but it no longer has the same hold or power over your over your conscious life when you see it in the terms of Dhamma, when you see it for what it is. It is it is what it is, but it's not more than that. Where when we're when we're when we attach to these, identify with them, then. Then it's more than that. It's it's a whole proliferation of the mind, and I am, and I should, and life should be, and this isn't fair, and and the whole uh, kind of condition, uh, emotional reactiveness uh, to fears and desires, then is set off into motion, and we suffer. When we see it in the right way, then 
then we, we don't create suffering around the, the way things are. Because we can still, we're still going, you know, an enlightened human being is still conscious, sensitive, intelligent, feeling. Like the Buddha was certainly didn't lose any sensitivity or ability to feel life after his enlightenment. But he was no longer deluded by the appearances or by the prejudices or the conditioning of his mind or the of the culture and society that he that uh, he lived in. He could see these all of this in this term in this way of Dhamma. This is what what we uh, I encourage you to do to to in this reflective way to to investigate just what this 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 experience of life is a conscious being conscious feeling the way it has to be for for a lifetime within the human state and then the the things that we create around this which is the body is the body there's no there's no the it's the we're not saying it we're not we're not say we're not saying how it should be or whether a man is better than a woman or a woman better than a man or or whether uh, we're, we're not trying to make value judgments around the nature of the, the the body or whether it's attractive or unattractive or anything it is it is the result of birth the human body is the result of birth but then this is just the way it is this is a, a truth that we can recognize this is dhamma it's conscious, it's sensitive. And then with this, with establishing this, this sense of this, this, this reflection on Dhamma or the way it is, then we can, then we have something to reflect upon in uh, the way that we identify with it. Whether we like our appearance or we don't. Uh, whether we, 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 you know, we, we can, like vanity, is always thinking, you know, my nose is too big or too small, my eyes or my complexion, I wish it were better than this, or my mouth is too wide or too narrow, the lips are too too big or too thin. There's cosmetic surgery, I think they make fortune these days, out of trying to, people's, appealing to people's vanity to get the perfect nose and, and to get the right chin and, and kind of stretch the skin as you get older so the wrinkles are kind of don't aren't there and and get the kind of bags out from under your eyes and dye your hair and all the rest <laughs> is, a, is a way of, of being so identified with the, with the body that that you can't accept the natural process of age or just the way it is because you you think of it? Oh, I don't like my, my I don't like my nose. But when you when you contemplate it in terms of dhamma, you can see that this is this is conditioning. This uh, this sense of I don't like my nose is my is a is something to put in the in that terms of uh, sanya sankara rather than than grasp it and suffer because uh, God didn't give you the perfect nose. And therefore, every time you look at it, you think, oh, it's not fair to have a nose like this. <laughs> and then we suffer. But when we, 
when we see the nose, whether it's a beautiful or it's big or small or whatever its shape or form, when we see it merely as Dhamma, then we don't suffer from it. It is what it is, but it, that it, we've taken out that, that assumption, that, that delusion around it. So in terms of Dhamma, like you, this wisdom faculty, and you're using this wisdom to see things exactly as they are. It's a very direct, very honest, very real understanding of this conditioned realm that, that affects us and, and uh, influences us. But instead of being helplessly caught and victimized by the conditioning of our minds and the society we live in, we we can liberate ourselves from from that through this right understanding or what we call samaditi, right understanding of the Dhamma. With your meditation now, like when you do the uh, anapanasakti, uh, you know, don't try to get tra- don't don't hang on to don't try to get something out of it but but just use it more as I say to uh, encourage you as I keep uh, yeah, saying over and over again to relax and to to go to it with a with a mind rather than with a force go to it with a sense of 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 uh, patience and and uh, of well-being towards this, rather than than going to it with with a lot of compulsiveness, because that is that's a lot of, that's suffering to think that I've got to get my concentration, I've got to get something out of this. So, in if your mind wanders, then just then just be patient with it. Don't doesn't matter if it wanders, bring it back again. Wanders, then bring it back. Don't have to get anywhere. Don't have to become anything. And then, as you stop, as you kind of have more confidence and faith and trust in the practice, and just with patience with yourself, and and, this, and and you can then you can reflect on these things. You can bring up into your into your mind. Just look at, at the, the the sense of yourself. What is it? You know what what do you the the perceptions or assumptions you have about yourself that that you find painful or or uh, or, or that you feel uh, defensive about or you that that give you a, a, a sense of vulnerability or or that you're not good enough or you're or that life hasn't been fair enough or that, that all of this these kind of feelings and and attitudes and assumptions we can we can begin to look at in this in this way of dhamma what arises ceases and it really you begin to really break through this the the uh, this this kind of deluded assumption that you are kind of permanently this type of person 24 hours a day 365 days a year for a lifetime my mother Told me that that she uh, she died when she was 88 years old, and she had a she was 
her, her, my grandmother didn't want to have a girl. When my mother was the first child, and being a girl, my grandmother was really angry about having a girl. You see, so my mother grew up with this sense of feeling it like unwanted, and it was it was uh, and it was something that was came from probably the day she was born when they discovered that she was a girl instead of a boy. So it wasn't like a rational thing. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't something that uh, was, uh, was at all rational. Rationally, she could see through it. But emotionally, she was still very much affected by the, this assumption about herself as somehow being unwanted and not very good. Uh, by being a, a girl, being a female. And that went through most of her life. She, she, and at the end of her life, she kind of, she saw through it. But, uh, but it took maybe 70 years or so <laughs> with someone that just more or less, you know, wasn't meditating and wasn't really looking at this conditioning process. She still managed to, to get out of it at the end of her life. But she said how much unhappiness, she, how, how miserable she made a lot of her life just by that, that, that assumption of that she was unlovable or, non, or, or unwanted from, from an experience that, say, was probably from the day of her birth. Uh, and, 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 her, and her mother did say, you know, I never really wanted you anyway. And as she got older, my grandmother was, was could be pretty uh, cruel to her children. But this this uh, sense of being unlovable or unwanted, uh, uh, these kind of things that we can bring into our consciousness and see them in this heap of perception. We can also see that that these are emotive. That that this is an emotional thing. It's not rational. You can say you can you, you can rationalize and say, of course, you know, people really like me. They tell me I'm a very nice person and and all that, and you know, I have a lot of friends and no reason for me to think this. But this is how I actually feel, because the feeling is is not always in line with your rational uh, faculty, is it? It's not. It's a different function of your mind. So one needs to see the the feeling, the vedana. The, the sanya, the sankara, this, these three between the rupa and the vijnana, or the body and consciousness, this, this process of feeling, perception, and volition, uh, you, you can investigate in terms of dhamma. And by doing that, you begin to understand why, why you suffer, why your life, why there's a sense of maybe a sense of, 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 uh, fear or anxiety about your around that hovers around you or why you can feel depressed or or, or feel worthless or unlovable when when there's no rational uh, reason to to think this or how we can interpret somebody somebody uh, if you're really kind of neurotic you can you can interpret uh, somebody's friendliness as being aggressive and or somebody wanting to harm you.
we can we can uh, we can project onto people all kinds of all all our fears. We can see somebody uh, somebody that looks uh, uh, cross-eyed. I see somebody with crossed eyes. I think that person hates me. When you're giving a talk and, and somebody walks out of the room, you think. <laughs> One time Ajahn Chah had me, this is when I was giving talks in Thailand, and, and uh, he, uh, and I had to give them in Thai, which was, you know, a language I didn't have much confidence in using, so we go to these kind of katina ceremonies and papa ceremonies and they say, we want to hear uh, Pratsumato give a talk. You know, Ajahn Chah would insist I get up on the high seat and give a talk. And usually I'd say a few words, ten minutes, and then get get down, you know, and get away. Then one day we had this important katina ceremony and he said a lot of people were there and and those ceremonies, we sit up all night till dawn, yeah, the monks and the lay people, all night sittings. And and he said, I want you to speak for three hours. <laughs> I thought, He's expecting a lot from me. So I got up and I sat on the high seat for three hours and babbled on in... <laughs> In not very good tie, and I sat there and I had to watch people getting up and leaving. And, <laughs> and by the time I finished, uh, everybody, nearly everyone, had fallen asleep, <laughs> except for a few polite old ladies who were <laughs> sitting there like this. And the 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 village ladies of Northeast Thailand are real saints. They're real <laughs> But it was, he obviously, Lung Po Cha had a, he had a sense of humor, and also <laughs> he recognized that, that uh, sometimes we give talks to entertain or to, you know, to boost our ego, to, to say wise things or to, to all kinds of, of motives and that. And we, we, and, but what he was encouraging us to look at what's actually taking place inside us when we're giving these talks and how we can, you know, uh, suffer a lot by just projecting or assuming or wondering whether we're, we're considered uh, good or people enjoy our speech or our talks and, and or whether we're, we've got a message we've got to give people. All the different uh, emotional uh, configurations that come with being a public figure and that and having been in the limelight were to be reflected on and 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 that was one way of, of Ajahn Chah's getting us to look at what the, the sense of a self is and being able to to let go of that to put it in that perspective of Dhamma rather than to uh, to make problems around giving speeches, giving talks, or not giving them, or whatever. And that, that of course, it, when you're giving a talk, you, 
you're the center, you're the focus, and that, that it's a very terrifying thing to be at first. When, when, when he first asked me to give a talk, I felt, I, I panicked. <coughs> I, he, he said it two, day, two or three days before I was to give the talk. And, uh, and I got so nervous and so, so panic-stricken that I said, I can't do it, I can't do it. And he said, okay, you don't have to do it. And, but I was, for three days I was in a state of anticipation, worry, and fear because of the self-consciousness, having to sit up on the high seat, having to, all those people there looking at me, listening, using a language I didn't feel very confident with, afraid I would make a mistake or say something wrong or offend people or, or what, um, say something terrible. Because in Thai you can, you can say things you can say you can make very funny uh, full pause in Thai if you don't get the tones right. Like one monk said, he liked he liked to ride in grasshopper uh, c- carriages. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he said, wrote Jagajan, <laughs> wrote Jagajan rather than Jagayan, and things like this. We would. We could, and then of course, Ajahn Chah used to collect all our faux pas. <laughs> yeah, I think he had a list of them. <laughs> Loved to tell all the Thai people about the way we murdered the language. <laughs> so in, in uh, practice now, with uh, concentrating the mind, keep working with that, but in a gentle kind of way, not in, and, and see, see any ten- tendency to force and compel, and then take time to reflect on, this, on Dhamma, like uh, to, to really bring into your mind now more like what, what you think you are, not as, just to, to see, just to observe the perceptions you have about yourself, about your worth, about your abilities or your attractiveness or unattractiveness or whether you're all these, these different things just to be just to notice them as conditions of the mind rather than perceptions to to empower with with your grasping and it helps a lot to 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 break free from a lot of wrong views and and assumptions and things that have caused uh, a lot of misery to us through uh, through these identification with these with these perceptions that we have. Mm-hmm.